welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Nothing bigly newsworthy came across my inbox this week, so I suppose I'll kick off the podcast to note simply that the Title 42 public health order, which was implemented during the Trump administration due to the COVID-19 pandemic and almost surely had very little to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, remains in place and is being applied to expel asylum seekers by the Biden administration. While the legal fight around continuing Title 42 is complicated, it's hard for me to see how maintaining the extraordinary policy at this time complies with U.S. immigration law. Fight to keep this issue front and center after the midterms. And donate to Immigrants List if you haven't already, because Ira Kurzban informs me that we are coming down to the wire, and candidates that support immigration reform are in need of everyone's assistance. And... If you want a self-certification CLE certificate for 10 episodes of the podcast, hit me up. That includes these four cases, of course. First is Singh v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on October 12th, 2022. Kind of. Not really a decision. Rather, a decision was issued in this long-awaited in banc case this week, and wouldn't you know it, the full Ninth Circuit did not go in bonk on Singh. That means that Singh v. Garland, episode 93 of the podcast, remains the law of the Ninth Circuit. Check out episode 93, of course, for this important decision. But to summarize here, Singh is the big Ninth Circuit holding, that as I read it, requires that in absentia removal orders commence with deficient notices to appear that were never cured by DHS by filing of a new NTA, i.e. all of them, need to be reopened in the Ninth Circuit. Looks like the Singh decision just barely survived in Bank rehearing, a decent bellwether of the state of the Ninth today. Relatedly, and the same day, the full court did not go in Bank in Mendez Colin v. Garland, which appears to be an unpublished decision that relied on Singh. Unsure why the court had a separate in Bank petition pending, but it all seems to be the same issue, so that's all I've got to say about that. 
As Judge Collins wrote in dissent, Singh, quote, casts doubt on the validity of potentially tens of thousands of in absentia removal orders issued in this circuit over the last two decades, end quote. Indeed it does. As there is now definitively a circuit split on the issue, and as the whole dispute originates with two recent Supreme Court decisions, I'd be astonished if the Supreme Court didn't take the dissent's invitation to hear this case this term or next. That is, unless the Solicitor General exercises her discretionary authority not to ask the Supreme Court to hear the Singh case. And that is Singh v. Garland. Kind of. Next is Sar v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on October 12th, 2022. This is a weird one on venue and stays of removal. Mr. Sar is an asylum seeker from Mauritania who the U.S. government decided to detain in Mississippi. From that detention facility, the immigration court had him appear before an IJ in Gina, Louisiana, at another detention facility. There are, of course, a disproportionate amount of immigration detention centers and courts located in rural and difficult-to-access areas of the 5th and 11th circuits, corresponding with America's traditional Deep South. And DHS may have eventually physically transferred Mr. Sar from Mississippi to Gina, Louisiana. It's a bit unclear. But what is clear is that in actuality, all four hearing notices list immigration courts located in New York at the top of the hearing notice. And Mr. Sar was instructed to file documents with courts located in New York. Notwithstanding all of that, quote, all four hearing notices cite Richwood, Louisiana as the location of the hearing, end quote. Mr. Sar's final hearing took place right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, well before we had a vaccine and before ICE relented and began releasing asylum seekers from detention. Mr. Sar appeared from the detention center in Louisiana with the IJ appearing from a court in New York and counsel and an interpreter appearing over the telephone from locations that no one in this decision actually knows. Quote, the certificate page of the transcript of the hearing lists Buffalo, New York, below Mr. Sar's name and alien registration number. End quote. Confusing as all of this is, both the immigration statute and regulations permit it, said the Second Circuit. And apparently, video hearings like this accounted for 46% of EOIR hearings in 2021. Whoa. Anyway, Mr. Sar lost his case before both the IJ sitting in Buffalo and on appeal to the BIA, and he filed a petition for review with the Second Circuit. He then moved for a stay of removal with the Second Circuit, because asylum seekers and all non-citizens can be removed to the country that they fear, pending circuit review, absent a stay of removal from the circuit. And it would seem that the stay was pending for like two years. Oil moved to transfer both the petition for review and the stay motion to the Fifth Circuit, arguing that the Fifth and not the Second Circuit had jurisdiction over this case. I wonder why Oil wanted to get it from the Second to the Fifth. Therefore, before addressing the stay, the Second Circuit addressed its venue. INA Section 242b2 states that venue for a petition for review is proper in the circuit, quote, in which the immigration judge completed the proceedings, end quote. Seems clear enough, but it's not in the age of video hearings, said the court. Because notwithstanding the immigration judge's physical seating in New York within the Second Circuit's jurisdiction, the court here held that the removal proceedings were completed 
in Louisiana. That is in part because under the regulations, ACFR section 1003.14a, to be specific, quote, Jurisdiction vests and proceedings before an immigration judge commence when a charging document is filed with the immigration court by DHS, end quote. Now I'm just going to put aside the fact that many if not all of the circuits in the deficient NTA cases have held that the word jurisdiction in this regulation doesn't actually refer to jurisdiction in the traditional sense. Truly, putting that mess aside for the moment, the fact remains. To the Second Circuit, the regulations evince an understanding that the NTA's physical filing governs which court has authority over a case unless venue is subsequently transferred, of course. Plus, quote, each of Mr. Sarr's hearing notices provide a Louisiana address as the location of Mr. Sarr's removal hearing, end quote. Even though those hearing notices also list a New York court at the top of each hearing notice for the filing of documents. Clear as mud. Or in judicial speak, it, quote, created reasonable confusion, end quote. The Second Circuit went on to explain that under the regulations, the Buffalo Immigration Court had, quote, administrative control, end quote, over the proceedings, but that's not the same as jurisdiction or venue to the court. And so holding, the Second Circuit agrees with the BIA footnote in matter of RCR, and it creates a circuit split with the Ninth and the Tenth Circuits, which according to the Second Circuit, take a more holistic approach based on consideration of various factors in a given case when determining venue in cases like this. It also splits from the bright line rule created by the Fourth Circuit in Herrera Alcala v. Garland, episode 114, under which venue lies where the IJ physically, quote, sat during proceedings, end quote. So the opposite decision would have occurred in this case if it had all occurred in the Fourth Circuit. Wild. Gong again. And it seems like the Seventh Circuit might agree with the Fourth Circuit there. Despite all of that, the Second Circuit exercised its discretion not to transfer the case to the Fifth Circuit here, quote, in light of Mr. Sarr's understandable confusion about the proper venue for his petition, the period of time in which Mr. Sarr's petition has been pending before this court, and the fact that Mr. Sarr's counsel is based in New York, end quote. Having kept the case, the Second Circuit then denied the stay. Applying the well-worn factors under the Supreme Court's decision Nickin v. Holder, the Second Circuit held that Mr. Sarr wasn't likely to win on the merits of his case. And that's because Mr. Sarr's primary argument was that the immigration judge and the BIA applied the wrong legal precedent when they applied Fifth Circuit law rather than Second Circuit case law to his asylum claim. But the Second Circuit just held that actually the Fifth Circuit was the proper venue. So that argument is pretty dead in the water, said the court. Plus, Mr. Sarr, quote, may continue to pursue his petition from abroad and, if successful, would be afforded relief by the facilitation of his return, end quote. All that being said, the U.S. government apparently has a forbearance policy such that it doesn't, as a matter of policy, remove people when their petition for review is pending in the Second Circuit. So all of this is likely academic, to paraphrase the court here. Good reason to file a petition for review in the Second Circuit, though. And by the way, Mr. Sarr was released from ICE detention at some point during this whole ordeal. So to summarize, 
Venue is proper in the Fifth Circuit, and Fifth Circuit law probably applies to the case, but the Second Circuit is going to take the petition for review, and probably will apply Fifth Circuit law. And the Second Circuit denied a stay, deciding that Mr. Sarr will probably lose on the merits when the Second Circuit gets to the merits. But today is not that day. And by the way, a stay is almost surely unnecessary for Mr. Sarr. Got it? And alright, fine, I'm not going to put that jurisdictional thing aside. Because if venue was proper in the Fifth Circuit, because jurisdiction vested there when DHS filed the NTA in the Louisiana court, then shouldn't DHS's violation of a mandatory claims processing rule preclude jurisdiction and venue from vesting in the Fifth Circuit? Put another way, if venue is tied to a regulation binding upon DHS, then if the NTA was deficient in this case in violation of the regulations and statute, shouldn't that prevent DHS from benefiting from its choice of venue? I don't know if the NTA had the date and time and location of the first hearing in this case. It may well have. But if it didn't, shouldn't DHS's noncompliance with INA Section 239A's mandatory claims processing rule mean that the NTA cannot be used to place venue in the Fifth Circuit, meaning that venue and choice of law properly lies with the IJ in New York, who actually heard the case and had administrative control of proceedings? Things to ponder out loud on a podcast. And that is Sarvi Garland. Moving on to Moreno v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on October 14th, 2022. The First Circuit is back for its fourth decision in two weeks. I have a feeling we won't be seeing the first for a while. Take it in. This case is about adjustment of status and discretion. Mr. Moreno is a 54-year-old citizen of Cape Verde who entered the United States as a tourist in April of 1989. He overstayed and was granted voluntary departure in 1995, permitting Mr. Moreno to avoid a deportation order and the attendant inadmissibility bar if he departed by April 29, 1996. And that might have been an actual benefit, as opposed to today, because I believe Mr. Moreno would not have accrued unlawful presence, meaning that the 10-year bar implemented by IRIRA a few months after his voluntary departure order wouldn't have applied to him, I believe. But the day after the voluntary departure period ran, he filed a motion to reopen, seeking the pre-IRIRA form of relief, suspension of deportation that was applicable at the time. I don't know, maybe he got his seven years in the interim? Looks like that's exactly what happened, April 1989 to April 1996. And it looks like an immigration judge reopened the case. But then the IJ denied suspension and granted him voluntary departure again. Mr. Moreno appealed to the BIA and in November 2001, the BIA administratively closed the case, finding that by then, Mr. Moreno might be eligible for post-IRIRA non-LPR cancellation of removal, which is more difficult to get, than suspension of deportation. Not gonna lie, a few things here don't quite add up to me, but this is what the decision says, though this is what I shall report. With his removal proceedings dormant, Mr. Moreno undoubtedly did a lot of things, including fathering U.S. citizen children. He also, however, developed a criminal record, including four DUI incidents beginning in 1996, which might explain the denial of suspension. And the last one was quite serious, a car crash with his minor child in the car that resulted in a conviction for, quote, child endangerment while operating under the influence, end quote. 
with an over three-year imprisonment sentence ordered, although it seems that most of it was suspended. Looks like by this point DHS had had enough and moved to recalendar with the BIA, which the BIA did, and remanded to the IJ for, I suppose, renewed deportation proceedings? By this point, though, Mr. Moreno had a U.S. citizen's son over 21 years old who filed an I-130 immediate relative petition for him, and the petition was approved in 2019. Mr. Moreno therefore applied for adjustment of status under INA Section 245A. Unsure how or why that is, because actually I would have thought that these would have been remanded pre-IRIRA deportation proceedings. Or maybe it was the same statute both pre- and post-IRIRA for adjustment of status? Whatever, I'll shut up about my procedural confusion. The immigration judge weighed a lot of stuff, but ultimately denied adjustment as a matter of discretion. The IJ relied heavily on Mr. Moreno's criminal and alcohol history, and apparently his lack of candor, when discussing it on the stand in court. He's been here a long time, though, and he's worked hard, and it seems that his U.S. citizen family and life partner suffer from some serious medical issues. Nevertheless, the IJ concluded, quote, the positive equities in this case simply cannot outweigh the adverse factors, end quote. The BIA affirmed, and then denied Mr. Moreno's motion to remand, which sought a second chance before the IJ based on the, quote, new previously unavailable evidence that his life partner had been diagnosed with a low-grade form of brain cancer and was undergoing treatment, end quote. The BIA believed that this fact wouldn't move the needle on the discretionary denial. And to the First Circuit it went. But under Patel and prior First Circuit precedent, the court, quote, lacks jurisdiction to review the way that the BIA exercised its discretion in denying his adjustment of status application, end quote. A legal point that Mr. Moreno had to concede. So he argued that the BIA, quote, both ignored important facts in the record and clearly mischaracterized others, end quote. The First Circuit didn't agree with that framing. The BIA did a fine job, said the court. Regarding the BIA's denial of the motion to remand for presentation of the new evidence, well, the First Circuit believed that this too was a challenge to the BIA's weighing of evidence and its exercise of discretion under the 1990s decision matter of Coelho. And so, quote, while we recognize the severity of this outcome because we cannot discern any error of law in the BIA's explanation of its conclusion, we have no authority to review the BIA's exercise of discretion, end quote. The First Circuit therefore affirmed the denial of the motion to remand, and Mr. Moreno lost his case. And that is Moreno v. Garland. That brings us to Baghdad v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on October 11, 2022. This final one is an interesting case on aggravated felony theft offenses and mental states. And it's been a while. Welcome back to the podcast, mens rea. Mr. Baghdad is not from Iraq, but rather Morocco, and has lived in the United States as an LPR for 20 years. He and two accomplices took about $1,000 worth of drills from a Home Depot and then pawned them, leading to a plea of guilty to retail theft under 18 Pennsylvania Statute, Section 3929A1. He could have faced two years for the crime, but it looks like the plea deal saved him from serving some time for his Home Depot offense. More saving, more doing. An IJ and then the BIA deemed that an aggravated felony theft offense under INA Section 11843G. 
True, that aggravated felony provision requires a term of imprisonment of at least one year, but it looks like that after all, Mr. Baghdad served over one year. Alas, criminal defense counsel, alas. The question then becomes, does the conviction match the federal definition of theft under the categorical approach? Or as the Third Circuit put it, quote, If that statute criminalizes acts that are not normally considered theft, then his retail theft conviction does not count as a theft conviction under the act. And so it would not be an aggravated felony, end quote. In its Duanis Alvarez decision, the Supreme Court described the three elements of an aggravated felony theft offense as, quote, one, taking of property or an exercise of control over property, two, without consent, three, with the criminal intent to deprive the owner of rights and benefits of ownership, even if such deprivation is less than total or permanent, end quote. To rephrase, does the Pennsylvania statute have all three of those elements and nothing less? The dispute here comes down to the third element. Mr. Baghdad is in trouble there because the Pennsylvania statute requires that the defendant act, quote, with the intention of depriving the merchant of the possession, use, or benefit of such merchandise, end quote, without the merchant's consent. Seems to match the third element required of an aggravated felony theft offense. But here's the thing. 18 Pennsylvania Statute Section 3929C permits the jury to convict based merely on a presumption that the defendant intended to deprive the merchant of property where the defendant was found to have intentionally concealed but not purchased the property. This, Mr. Baghdad intelligently argued, quote, shifts the burden of proof onto defendants, end quote, meaning that a conviction doesn't require a finding by a jury sufficient for immigration purposes that the defendant actually harbored the requisite intent. Because again, under this theory, a jury in Pennsylvania can simply presume that the defendant had the requisite intent. Quote, at a minimum, Mr. Baghdad claims it lets them convict based on the mere fact of concealment without evidence sufficient to show an intent to deprive, end quote. And the aggravated felony theft offense requires an intent to deprive. Love the argument. The Third Circuit did not. Or should I say it wasn't as smitten as I. Quote, Mandatory presumptions are different from permissive inferences. Mandatory presumptions, also known as legal presumptions, require a jury or judge to reach certain conclusions absent rebuttal evidence, end quote. It does seem, though, that actually, if the Third Circuit read this Pennsylvania framework as a mandatory presumption, Mr. Baghdad might have won. But the Third Circuit did not so read the statute, and in fact, it probably never will, because, quote, in a criminal case, these are unconstitutional because they shift the burden of proof onto defendants, end quote. Which means that if the Third Circuit or any court read a state crime as requiring that a jury comply with a mandatory presumption on mens rea, the criminal statute itself would probably be deemed unconstitutional irrespective of immigration. To the Third Circuit, this here in this statute is a permissive inference, and quote, a permissive inference does not water down the requisite intent to steal and does not shift the burden of proof on the defendants, end quote. It does not, according to the Third Circuit, require that a jury find the element of the offense met beyond a reasonable doubt. They just can do so if they like. Moreover, Mr. Baghdad couldn't find a case where the statute applied a mandatory presumption. And again, if he had, he would have been in effect proving that the criminal statute is unconstitutional, which the Third Circuit certainly wasn't willing to simply presume. 
Notice though how this is the third circuit applying the realistic probability test in the manner it's supposed to be applied. The statute appears to make Mr. Baghdad removable based on the text of the statute, but if he can satisfy the realistic probability test and find an overbroad case, he can avoid removability. Duanis Alvarez The jury instructions in Pennsylvania also strongly indicate that the presumption is permissive rather than an unconstitutional burden shift in a criminal case. And even though it appears that the jury instructions use the normally mandatory language of shall when talking about this presumption, state courts, quote, routinely read statutory language like shall be presumptive evidence of as just permissive inferences, end quote. So Mr. Baghdad did not succeed, and he remains removable. The Third Circuit, quote, trusts that Pennsylvania courts will keep treating Section 3929C as permissive and ensure that juries apply the inference in a way that accords with due process, end quote. But to be clear, it seems like Mr. Baghdad got really close to satisfying the realistic probability test. After all, the Third Circuit notes after reviewing a bunch of cases that, quote, it gives us pause that in these cases, a prosecutor chose to proceed, the grand jury indicted, the judge did not direct a verdict of acquittal, and the jury convicted without sufficient facts to support the requisite intent to deprive the owner of the property. But Pennsylvania's appellate courts have made clear, and Pennsylvania's jury instructions explicitly require, that juries infer intent to steal only when that inference can be made beyond a reasonable doubt, end quote. Put another way, there is a realistic probability that the Pennsylvania lower courts and prosecutors are convicting in an overbroad manner and that they are doing so unconstitutionally, said the Third Circuit, but there is not a realistic probability that the appeals courts won't clean it up on appeal, if of course an appeal is taken. Thinnest of lines, my friends. Although looking up the judge who wrote the decision, he was a criminal law professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law before his appointment. And while we're here, I note that the Third Circuit amended its St. Ford decision published last May on ineffective assistance of counsel. Looks like the court amended it by like two sentences. So go back and listen to the OG analysis on episode 108. I command ye, because we have concluded episode 129. And that is Baghdad v. Attorney General of the U.S. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet 
at imreview. That's I-M-M review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.